Welcome to the Soccer Metrics Podcast, a discussion and interview series with leading names in the soccer analytics world. Here's your host, the founder of Soccer Metrics, Howard Hamilton. Welcome to episode number six of the Soccer Metrics Podcast for the 22nd of November, 2013. Soccer Metrics Podcast is an information and interview series with leading figures from the soccer analytics world, with occasional forays into the broader worlds of football business and sports analytics. In this episode, I'm pleased to have on the show Dr. Gaier Jordae. Dr. Jordae is a professor at the Norwegian School of Sports Sciences and the head of the psychology division of the Norwegian Center of Football Excellence. He is a sports psychology consultant to athletes in a variety of sports, but the majority of his work is in football, and he has consulted professional clubs and national teams across Europe. Gaier, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining me. Thank you very much, Howard. It's a pleasure being here. Gaier, could you talk a bit about your background and your current job? Sure. Um, my background is that I um, I uh, played football actively as a, uh, uh, as a young young player, um, but had to had to stop uh, due to an, to an injury. And then I did two things. Uh, I got straight into to coaching, um, and I pursued my my degrees in in sports science and sports psychology. So I basically picked up. Um, all the degrees that I could get hold of, so my master's, my PhD, and so forth. Uh, and then uh, at the same time, I also picked up doing more uh, sports psychology consulting with predominantly football players and, and teams. So so since, since then, and this is now, uh, I took my PhD about 10 years ago, I've really um, uh, pursued two parallel careers, so to say. I've I've uh, I've done my part uh, in in academics. Uh, uh, started out with having an academic job in a, in a university in the Netherlands, and then moved on to a similar job at a, at the sport university in in Oslo. Uh, but I've also spent a lot of time uh, consulting with teams and players and coaches, uh, just really trying to uh, help players and teams to, to perform better, to develop more effectively, uh, and to deal better with the, with the stress of a tough, global, competitive uh, football world. So that's, uh, that's basically it. Tell us more about the Norwegian Center of Football Excellence. Why was it established, and what are its objectives? Sure. Um, so, uh, like like you said in the introduction, I'm I'm uh, in charge of the psychology division at the Norwegian Center of Football Excellence. Um, this was established in 2009, um, uh, really as a as a response to to the fact that uh, that Norwegian teams were doing uh, poorly uh, in the international uh, uh, tournaments for national teams, but also in international club uh, tournaments. So this center, uh, uh, the aim of it was to to speed up the development of Norwegian players, um, predominantly really with uh, with uh, young talented players to to get more um, uh, to to get the development to become more effective, uh, but also to some extent with with the teams performing uh, on the international stage. So what what it in essence is is a, a research and development center for Norwegian football. So at the beginning it was 
uh, owned by the the football association uh, 50% and the norwegian professional league uh, the remaining 50% uh, a year ago so four years into it uh, the the football association uh, stepped down from their ownership so we're currently only owned by the by the norwegian league and some of the rationale for this is that uh, given that football is a uh, it's a global competitive sport uh, and Norwegian teams would obviously be competing against the best teams in, in Europe whose budgets are far, far exceeding anywhere what the Norwegian teams are close to having. We're thinking that if we can put all our forces together uh, and really think that this particular center of excellence or center of, of research and development uh, uh, that, that, that helps and caters to all of our teams, then maybe we can, at least in terms of knowledge development, be up there with you know the the Bayern Munichs and the Manchester Cities and the, and the Barcelonas. So although we're still struggling to compete on the football pitch, uh, we really do our best to compete in terms of knowledge. So so that's the rationale for it. Um, and at the moment we're. Uh, in practice, we're, we're we're doing two things. We're we're uh, we're gathering research. We do some research ourselves, but more than that, we really uh, synthesize research, collect research, uh, translate research, and really communicate research, so that our teams in our leagues, uh, our best players, our best coaches, they always have access to what we think are. Uh, some of the cutting edge knowledge that that is around there, uh, either uh, uh, generated by others or generated by by ourselves. Um, so that's the that's one part, and then the other part is that we're working directly with our teams. So, for example, for myself, I would be uh, given that I work on the psychology side. Uh, I have, as of now, with our sixteen top league teams. I have a, a working collaboration with really all of these teams. Um, but uh, there are three to four of them where I'll have more of a an intense working uh, uh, collaboration where I will be working with their uh, coaches one on one, uh, giving workshops for the teams uh, or following up players uh, one on one. It seems that professional sports clubs, especially professional football clubs, are very secretive about the about all sorts of data and processes surrounding uh, surrounding the playing staff. Um, mm -hmm. To the extent that even if they spot an opportunity to do research, they're reluctant to bring in outside people or even contract work to outside people because of security concerns. How how was the center able to deal with that? Um, well, that uh, that depends. I mean, um, uh, we're involved in uh, in many projects um, uh, domestically in Norway. Um, uh, this hasn't really been a big challenge for us. Um, um, well, it's been a challenge, but we've been able to overcome it. I think really, really good. Um, for example, we've done within this last two, three years, we've done some really big um, surveys uh, with uh, with all the uh, with all the players in our top leagues. Um, so specifically, what we've done is um, 
we've uh, created a, a big questionnaire uh, that, that really measures anything that you can imagine in terms of performance psychology. Uh, and we've administered this to every single player in, uh, in the top league, every single player in the second top league, every single player in the top league for women, and also every single player uh, at the age of 14 to 21 in the top league clubs. So that's a total of almost 1,600 players uh, and about 45 teams. And, and all these teams agreed to participate. Now, the reason that they participate is that uh, we've created a, um, a cooperation with these clubs so that they know that when they participate, they're always getting something back. And that's always the case with whatever we do. We have to be incredibly careful about uh, about these research uh, initiatives uh, and always make sure that whoever you're um, requesting knowledge from in terms of research, that they always get back at least as much as they put in and preferably much more. So with Norwegian football, that's uh, that's been, I think, very successful because we've gotten the, all this access and, and we've gotten a lot of really, really nice data that uh, that now is uh, is being put to use. Um, now we also uh, expand on this, so so we're we're currently uh, starting to work with some of the other Scandinavian uh, clubs, uh, so bigger clubs in in Sweden and, and in Denmark. We have multiple similar research collaborations set up with with uh, with teams there. Um, and we also have other projects where we're going out to Europe uh, and doing similar things. And again, the principle is is quite simple. Um, if you have a, a decent idea that they that they buy into, um, and and make sure to showcase uh, explicitly exactly what they're getting back, and of course they like the the concept of what what they're going to get back, uh, then in my experience, people are very cooperative. Um, now, the second you you violate that trust uh, and you don't give uh, uh, something back to them, then it's harder, of course. So, in my experience, it's uh, it's, it's going uh, it's difficult, but it's but it's uh, it's been pretty productive so far. How is football structured in Norway, and what are the challenges to having a successful national team? Um. The, um, uh, there are a lot of things that I could say about that, of course, but one thing uh, that is to some extent an answer to both your questions is that the, 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 football, the status of football in, in Norway is very big. Um, um, and it's a huge grassroots activity. Um, uh, some of the listeners may, may have, uh, have read the uh, the soccernomics book that was published uh, a few years ago, where where Norway was uh, announced the most football fanatic country in the world, uh, Norway of all countries, and part of that is that uh, that we have uh, an extraordinary high number of people playing football. Um, so I, I saw some of the latest figures on this, and I think that almost ten percent of the Norwegian population they're playing organized football so they're in some type of club playing football um, and that's that's pretty big uh, there are no other countries in the world who are that big at the grassroots level and I think there are a couple of other countries that are bigger if you only count men but we also have a fairly big uh, proportion of, of female players 
Um, now this is something we're proud of. It's a good, uh, um, it's good for the game. It's good for uh, for more public health, uh, and there are a lot of really good uh, good factors to this. Now a downside to that, uh, which obviously also is controversial, is that this could actually also uh, counter some of our ambitions to to get really great teams on the top. Because what we have is that we have a football that's that's very democratic. Uh, we have a football where uh, the competition structure is is very. Um, uh, some people would call it humanistic. Uh, very very cautious. It's not a it's not a hard competition uh, from from an early age on. That that doesn't start until a, a later age. Uh, so we're we're kind of we're pretty soft on our younger players, uh, and and this is really good in terms of getting uh, a lot of players to join in. Um, but a question is if that's also good for having the necessary high quality coaching in terms of performance development from an early age. Um, so there there this may be some of the reasons why we're struggling with our. Uh, top-level teams, our professional teams, our, our national teams, is that our younger players are getting late. Um, uh, they're, they're later into getting into the competitive uh, football than than a lot of the competitors. So you see some of the some of the countries that are doing really well in 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 the world now, like like the Netherlands or Spain. So they would have competitive leagues for for kids down to a, to quite an to quite a young age, sometimes even six, seven, and eight, whereas we really start our, our competition at the age of fourteen. So that's a that's a says a little bit about our structure, and it also says a little bit about our our, our challenge. Now, in terms of uh, another answer to uh, which may be interesting to the view to the listeners um, is um, is that um, although we're a, a very small country, we are we're only five million people uh, in total. We did fairly well with our our teams in in the nineties. Um, we had a had a club side uh, Rosenborg that uh, that qualified for the Champions League. I think eleven years in a, in a row, which is pretty good. Right. Uh, and we had and we had a national team um, that at at one point in the in the mid nineties was ranked number two in the world, uh, just after Brazil. Now. No one in Norway would really think that we were the second best country in the world, but at least we were we were doing fairly well with that team. We were in in the World Cups, we were in the, the in the Euros, uh, I, and, and we, I remember and we had a the good win side. against Brazil very well. Yeah, well, so do I. <laughs> I, I can assure you. <laughs> so, so we had a uh, we had a really good run in in the, in the mid to late nineties, um, and and a part of uh, the explanation for why we did well. Um, is uh, is analytics uh, because we had a very successful coach. Now this coach, he was also an academic, uh, and he really had his Egil whole. Olsen. Egil Olsen, yes. He, I mean, he had his his whole his whole playing style, his his way of 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 coordinating his team was was based on his research. Very simple research, you know what what's. How uh, what type of passes should you play at what time to to be most effective? Um, now, it's it's rare, I think, that you have uh, that the analyst is also the the person coaching and and being in charge of the team. But that was the case. 
So that was one of the things that that they did that was really good. The problem then was that um, because uh, uh, his position in our in our national football debate because of this knowledge that we had done so well using this particular approach um, uh, that that was so dominant uh, that we were not able to to follow up with with even better analyses and better activity afterwards so you could say that um, uh, professionally for the match analysis community in, in Norway and so forth we we probably got a little bit complacent uh, we thought that we were good at this uh, but this was basically when the rest of the world started doing analysis in uh, in football and starting getting into data uh, whereas we slept for I want to say eight to ten years um, and not until a few years ago, maybe with our center that we started now, have you really gotten back into the game again? So, so to me, that's also a part of the reason why we're not doing so well at the moment. I'd like to go deeper into your research, starting with a discussion of sports psychology and proceed into your areas of work. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that's fascinated me about academic studies in psychology is how experiments are carried out. They aren't done in the same manner as in the sciences or engineering, which mm -hmm. I'm more familiar with. Mm -hmm. So could you describe how you formulate hypotheses and test them? Uh, sure. Um, now, um, a sports psychologist uh, has, has grown into a pretty big field. Um, you have... Um, uh, you have your, your journals, um, I'm sure you can count 10 international peer-reviewed journals. You have some, uh, some fairly big conferences. Um, you, have, uh, you, you really have a community working with this and, uh, and more and more sports psychologists are work, working with teams, working with athletes. Um, so, it's, uh, so it's become a, a really a, a, a professional field. Um, and. Um, the research in sports psychology, <clears throat> um, starting in the actually I think as early as the as the twenties, um, <clears throat> uh, is obviously also very. There are a lot of different directions and a lot of different ways to do that, and um, what my research has been formulated to some extent as a reaction to is a feeling. Uh, that I had at least that that this field has become very um, uh, lab oriented and and to some extent uh, 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 detached from uh, the actual sport sport world. Um, so uh, in at least in terms of some of the the research that I've done, it's uh, the typical, setup would be to, 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 to take athletes and put them into uh, a small restricted lab uh, where you uh, show them simulations of, of uh, football situations and, and you register uh, all their uh, emotions at the, in this setting, all their um, cognitions. Uh, you can uh, you can record their eye movement to see, you know, on, on what what part of the the screen are they actually watching, and and you collect all this data based on this this particular situation. Uh, 
So I've turned that a little bit upside down and and try to start the research, although it is about psychology. I, I try to start with the, with the game itself, to start with what's actually going on on the pitch um, and to try to make the, uh, uh, the research questions that I ask aren't necessarily, at least from the beginning, from psychology, but they're actually more from the game itself. So I'd be interested in um, how do players perform in the most important situations when the pressure is truly on? What happens in those situations? Why do some players perform well and others uh, not so well? I'd be interested in what type of information do players actually base their decisions on uh, in an actual game? Um, how do they go about physically collect that information? In, 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 in a game setting. I'd be interested in why do some players learn more effectively than others? Why is that that, uh, that, that some players you can, you can almost you know, uh, physically detect, uh, see them learning and see them developing, whereas other players are more stagnant uh, and you can't really tell if a player has become better at all after a few months of, of activity. So, so so in terms of formulating hypotheses, I really, as much as possible, start with questions that I know are important to players, to teams, and, and to coaches. So that's really the beginning of, of this research. Another thing that has really been of interest to me is how do you quantify certain psychological behaviors, whether it is... Um, whether it's pressure, psychological pressure, um, or other or or other psychological factors that don't have a direct uh, quantitative uh, component, um, mm. how do you quantify those behaviors? Yeah. Um, well, that's very very difficult. <laughs> that's the first thing I have to say about that, and it it takes me so much time to come up with a key variable that you can actually observe, that you can actually see, and then obviously also quantify and, 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 and do really a good reliable analysis of. Um, so what, I, what I've spent much time on, and, and I've had, I think now probably hundreds of people working with me on, and a lot of students have done their student projects on this, um, is what you can see on videos. Um, so, we basically study videos. We study videos of games. Uh, we can study videos of practice. Uh, we take our own videos of, of games uh, where we f only focus on that limited um, uh, information that we're, the, that we're most interested in. Um, but even when you have good footage, I mean, for example, um, uh, one of the bigger um, uh, research uh, directions that, that we've taken is to look at how uh, some of the top players in the world perform under extreme pressure. And we've looked at, uh, at penalty shootouts, international penalty shootouts, all the shootouts from the, from the World Cup, the, the Euro and the Champions League from they started with this in 76 and until today. So the first step then would be to, to gather all these shootouts, which is also not necessarily easy. It's very easy with the last 10 years, but uh, try getting hold of the, 
you know, the bronze final in the 1980 Euro in uh, bet, uh, between uh, uh, Italy and, and uh, uh, Czechoslovakia. That, that's not so easy. So you have to do a lot of detective work just to get to this footage. Uh, so that was the first part. But then we just spent countless hours trying to understand what's going on, marrying what we could see on the videos with all the theories we had about stress, the theories we had about pressure. Um, and then when you've, when you've done that for, for a long period of time, and by long period of time, I mean now uh, maybe even a year or two, um, then you start to get some information. And, and, you, and, and, and of course, we did a lot of piloting uh, of various ways to look at this, and we had time to do it. Um, so then we came up with some variables, and we tested them, and, and then it kind of builds up from there. So that's that's really the process. Um, good uh, video footage uh, and and a lot of time. Right. You state on your research page that your work has been inspired by uh, three conceptual frameworks, and I see these frameworks again and again and again in your in your research projects. Um, mm. Those frameworks are perception, an ecological approach to uh, perception, mm. the theory of deliberate practice, and the theory of self-regulatory breakdown. Could mm. you go a little bit into those frameworks for the benefit of our listeners? Sure. Um, so, uh, first of all, um, yeah, deliberate practice. Um, so, so that's like I'm sure the listeners know. Uh, it's about uh, Anders Ericsson's approach to uh, to uh, what you actually need to do to attain an expert level at whatever activity you're involved in. So this is where he has his uh, ten thousand hour rule. Um, and um, uh, what we've done around that is um, really recognize that. Uh, that the that the logic of that theory, or what what he really says in this theory, is that to become good in for us football, uh, you need to engage in uh, a certain amount of high quality activity. Um, so we've measured everything around that uh, with uh, uh, Norwegian players, but also with Dutch players. So we've used to a large uh, part in this particular direction, uh, self-report data. Uh, we've asked the players to think back and to rate uh, exactly how much they've been engaging in various types of football activity uh, since they started playing until uh, today. Um, and also they've uh, uh, used similar self-report approaches to, to figure out exactly how have they practiced, uh, to what extent have they been deliberate in their activity, to what extent have they been planning what they do, to what extent have they gone into practice having a clear goal about what they want to improve, um, have they self-monitored uh, their activity during practice, have they evaluated practice, and to what extent do they reflect upon what they do after practice and in between practice. So this is what we call self-regulation of learning. 
this is also uh, has been uh, written about in a lot of popularized texts, such as uh, Dan Coyle's uh, Talent Code, where he calls this deep practice. Um, so, so we've gone into that, and we've also uh, done some observation of of young players at practice to try to basically see if we can connect this self-report data with more observational data. So that's really that that research area. Um, I've been heavily involved in that, although uh, Dr. Tinke Toring, uh, a Dutch researcher who's now working with us in, in Norway, uh, is, is, the, is the person who, who really has headed this, uh, this research. Now, interestingly, this um, uh, this research also is, has, has gotten a, a pretty big position, I want to say, definitely in Norway, but also in the Netherlands. Uh, and I also see more and more uh, teams and communities in, in England uh, amongst the academies in, in the Premier League who are using this type of, 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 of thinking for impacting their players in practice in a more effective way. So that's that part. Um, in terms of perception, um, this has been something that uh, that I've worked with now for for many years. Um, really trying to uh, figure out how the best football players collect, process, and use information on the field in in games. Um, and the way we do that is that we. Uh, we, 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 we film players with uh, uh, an extreme zoom camera so that we can zoom in on each particular player that we're interested in uh, and get uh, close-up images of them that we then analyze afterwards. So the, the theoretical rationale for this is uh, James Gibson's ecological uh, paradigm. Um, and this is a paradigm that although it grew up uh, in, uh, at the same time that uh, the, the cognitive psychology revolution took place, uh, Gibson wasn't so interested in uh, the exact cognitions, the exact memory traces, uh, the central executive and, and, and really what goes on in the brain. Uh, Gibson was more interested in what uh, type of environment is the brain inside. So not what's inside the brain, but what is the brain inside. Um, and, and so basically what, what we're interested in using this paradigm is how does the player interact with his, her environment? Um, what, what are the relationships between the player and the environment? And to do that, we need to look at the environment. And by looking at the environment and how the player is in the environment, we can actually get a lot of information. So specifically, we look at uh, exactly um, what, what type of, of, of uh, uh, head, head and body movements do the players engage in prior to receiving the ball and while having the ball. Because there's so much information happening on a football field that are, that's not necessarily located right in front of the player. And when there is information happening on the sides or behind the player, you could very easily see what the player is trying to look at by looking at how the player looks. So of course we have a lot of um, uh, routines and, 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 and ways to set up um, uh, uh, protocols for, for how to measure this. Um, 
when we can we use videos from um, from others also for this uh, i've been very fortunate to to get access to uh, a large data set from um, from sky sports uh, when they filmed player using similar types of of, uh, of close-up uh, footage uh, so we have a uh, almost 120 players uh, like that um, but at the moment we're also actually gathering this information uh, on our own by by simply sending uh, students to, to to venues all over Europe uh, where they uh, go into the stadium uh, of course with permission from the from the organizers and uh, and we film some of the best players in Europe um, using this close-up uh, uh, method and then the last and the third kind of major um, uh, research that we've done uh, at least so far until uh, a couple of years ago was uh, really looking at what players do under extreme pressure and um, uh, the the theoretical rationale for that is uh, like you said uh, a self-regulatory breakdown rationale uh, really the the um, the assumptions here is that when when someone chokes under pressure or fails under pressure it often starts with um, the pressure situation per se which again is defined by uh, us having a certain uh, position uh, we're going into a certain situation where we have a position we have a we have a certain status we have a certain self-worth if you want uh, then comes a threat um, something in that position saying how important it is what we do and how important and negative it is if you if you fail now the typical human reaction to that situation would then be some type of emotional distress typically that would be anxiety tension worry uh, and it could even be aggression and and so far that uh, that reaction is is very normal because uh, everyone will have that uh, emotional reaction to to such a, to such a situation but where people some people some players choke and others don't is that when you take that emotion uh, and and you make that the focus for your next action um, and you try to self-regulate basically based on that emotion where you try to remove yourself from that emotion or you try to push that emotion away uh, at that point your focus is not necessarily on the performance itself and that's where you the river you start to fail so what i see for example in 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 in, in the penalty shootouts that we've, we've uh, analyzed is that in this in some of these situations the players suddenly start to um to 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 look away from what's going on their gaze is diverted away from the stressful information uh they they, they look at other things they, they they start to to rush through their preparations instead of making sure that the ball is uh is properly placed on the on the penalty spot they they rush through that part um and in that attempt to seemingly get the situation over with as quickly as possible um, that's also where they stop self-regulating for performance but start self-regulating for getting rid of the bad emotions and that's where they fail yeah that's uh that's very interesting i um there's this one image 
from 90s penalty taking that I remember, and you probably remember it as well. It's of uh, Davor Suker, uh, the mm. Croatian player, I think. Mm. What, and I think he was really famous for checking his pulse before he took a penalty. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know if you remember. I'm pretty sure you do remember that. Um, it, is that... I know it's a very unique coping strategy, but is that an example of a player trying to regulate himself in order to properly focus to take, you know, to take a penalty kick? Um, that, that's of course the hard part about this. Also, that is that there's so many individual strategies in this situation, and and uh, when you have a player like like Soker who who was a you know, a, a, a very proficient striker who, who probably had taken hundreds of penalty kicks in his career. Uh, at that point, I actually have quite large respect for almost whatever strategy they have in that situation. Because what that strategy they have does is that it, to a large extent, will anchor their focus. And they will already have a lot of you know, motor perceptual programs in place to, to deal with that situation. And it's, it's, a, it's a high probability that, that those programs will, will also fire correctly when they're under extreme pressure. Uh, now, there are a couple of things that happen here in addition, though, and that is that, um, first of all, uh, when, you're, when you have a, a very high-profiled player, that player will also probably... Uh, have more expectations on him to perform. And that will affect these players almost always negatively in this situation. So, so we see that uh, a, a considerably larger number than what would be the, ca would be, be the case by chance of these high-profile players, they, they, they actually miss in, in these situations. So the superstars tend to flop, uh, as I would say. However, yeah. but just last thing, point sure. there is that um, uh, a player like Sokir who is a, is a striker and a, and, and a good penalty taker they will have some of these routines in place that I think will buffer a little bit for, for that type of extra pressure added on. So what we see is that when you have a, a high profile defender taking a, a, a big penalty kick they will be much more vulnerable to these pressure effects than a high profiled striker. Right, uh, that's understandable, I would imagine. Uh, you wrote a paper, uh, I think the the running title was called Choking in Soccer, the full title was a little bit more involved, where you, um, where you examined this relationship between high public status and, um, and degraded performance and penalty kick shootouts. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what you what you seem to point out was that this this phenomenon seems to affect English penalty kick takers than anyone else, um, at mm -hmm. least from from your limited data set. Um, one was it really challenging to come up with that finding with with such a limited uh, data set, or is the data set in fact? that limited that so limited that you can't make um really authoritative uh, statements um well that's a that's a difficult question obviously in terms of the sample size here because 
um, these these really big penalty shootouts they don't happen that often. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, so when you look at national teams, it's for the European teams at least it would be the World Cup every fourth year and it would be the Euro every fourth year, uh, and then. Even though you know every tournament tend to have their penalty shootouts, it's we're not talking that many shootouts in total. Um, so, f so for this uh, particular uh, study, I don't think we had more than a total of about two hundred shots uh, or something like that to to deal with. Um, and uh, so, it's, so it's not it's not a big data set. Uh, like for the English, I think they had. I think we had about the th thirty penalties or something with with English players, um, and it tended to be something similar for the, for the others. So 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 the sample is is relatively small. But what we could say is that um, it's in a way it's not even a sample. In a way, this is a an historical analysis because we're looking at the whole population, every single shot that ever has been taken in these tournaments we've, we've analyzed. Um, so so you, we can't get a bigger sample; it doesn't exist. Now, to what extent are these findings uh, generalizable, and can we really uh, extrapolate from them? That's of course the interesting question, and. To some extent, I think, um, of course, we're we're only reporting the the findings that are uh, statistically significant uh, and so forth. Uh, and and when we use those criteria, then we we do find that that the English players are uh, distinguishable from from many of the others. Uh, so England would be interesting just because they're um, the team that has the, the the worst penalty shootout record uh, in the world ever. Uh, they've I think they've been in now is it seven shootouts in total, and they've they won one shootout and they lost six. Um, and then it becomes interesting to see what what do they do, uh, if anything, that's different than 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 the other teams. And this is where we do find that uh, those. Uh, self-regulatory, self-destructive behaviors that I spoke about, where you, where you kind of let the, the emotions get the better of you by, by trying to escape the emotions seemingly in this situation rather than focusing on the shot. Those are types of behaviors that the English players are engaging in to a, to a much larger extent than, than really all the other countries, which is interesting. And I'll give you one example. We found, for example, that um, from the moment that uh, the, uh, the the player has put the ball on the spot, has stepped back to prepare his shot, uh, and he's ready to run towards the ball, he's just waiting for the referee's whistle. And from the moment that whistle comes to the first movement towards the ball has been taken, the English players spend on average 0.28 seconds. Uh, now that's incredibly fast. In comparison, I can say that uh, the sprinter Usain Bolt spends about 0.2 seconds. So the English players are just slightly slower than Usain Bolt, but I don't think that they want to compare themselves with, with Usain Bolt in this situation. And what we also find is that those really quick reactions to the referee in that situation, that's also highly correlated with, with bad performance. So that's almost as if the players are trying to get the kick over with. Exactly. It's, it seems like that's more important than to score the goal almost. Now, can you say from that result that players should 
you know, always wait long time after the referee has blown his whistle. That I don't know for sure. Uh, I do know that a, a way that these players choke in these situations is by taking very quick time. And I also know that it's probably smart to take a breath or to just take a second after the referee has blown his whistle. Uh, but it, but still, I don't, you know, there's no cause effect in this data. So I, I can't really conclude for certain how, how you want to behave in the future. On the flip side of that, there's Germany, who have yeah. only lost one penalty kick shootout. And that was by, you know, a kick that everyone knows about, the Panenka. So um, they don't have any lack of high-paid players who are under pressure from their local press to perform. But they seem to perform in ways that are very different from the rest of the world, especially from England. So what is it about their performance in these situations that, that are so different? Um, it's harder to, to find specific things with Germany. I, I can tell that, you know, on, on, these, uh, 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 on these variables that we've looked at, such as what I, what I mentioned, uh, the time variable, you can see that the Germans definitely, they take longer time with the shots. Um, which again can be a can be a good strategy. It could also be that that the German players are somewhat less affected by the pressure in these situations. Um, so 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 uh, I have some speculations like that, but it could also be that uh, that the German players are still affected by the pressure, uh, yet they're performing more more normally. Uh, they're not doing anything spectacular or anything very special. They're just not uh, doing the really spectacular wrong things, like I would argue that England has done, and that some of these other countries, like the like the Dutch, like the Italians, to some extent, that they are doing. So, so a penalty shootout for me is is not really won by the team who does the great spectacular performances but it's lost by the teams who do the who do the errors who do the mistakes who do the uh, the stupid things so to me it's more interesting to watch to analyze the the players and the teams who do bad in a penalty shootout than the players and the teams who do well in a, in a penalty shootout i guess generalizing a little bit from there is it easier to is it easier to perform up to previous successes than it is to um, perform beyond or overcome uh, previous failures? Um, um, perhaps, um, like in, in, in that particular situation, again, if we, uh, we've looked at that as well in a, in a paper we published last year, um, that basically just simple um, what what's the individual performance like today uh, on, on the basis of how your team performed in the last couple of games that they uh, ended up in a penalty shootout in. Uh, and, and you can really find very clear tendencies again that if a team, if your team has won the past two, two shootouts, your chance of scoring on your individual kick today uh, is dramatically elevated compared to uh, a situation with the opposite where your team has 
last the two the two shootouts. Now one could think that if a team has won uh, a couple of shootouts in a row pre uh, previous to, to today, that that would also add some pressure uh, on on your team and and on you as an individual player. And I think it does, but I also think that that pressure is again buffered by that added confidence that comes from knowing that I am in a team who tends to do well. Um, that there's more of a problem if that pressure comes from something that's not related to that actual task that you're going to perform today. Then it becomes more a pressure component rather than the specific, uh, the task specific component of, uh, of, of, of confidence. Okay. Um, okay. Going to the last, um, last part of this interview, looking into factors in expert performance in football. And I would imagine there's a lot of interest in this, even outside in football, because people like to observe behaviors of elite athletes in a sport and seek to find corollaries to elite performance in other areas of life. Mm -hmm. um, so I, in your research, you talked about the importance of football-specific practice at early age um, and also the development of perception and, and deliberate practice, which, of course, goes into football-specific practice. Mm -hmm. It seems that there is some tension between uh, special, specialization and mm. diversification at an early age. I know that it's, mm. it's especially relevant in this country because there are so many sports for youth athletes to participate in. Mm. And there's always a tension between specializing one sport and playing in a large number of sports mm. at an early age. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? and I guess more broadly into the factors that influence expert performance in football. Mm -hmm. um, this, is, um, <clears throat> this is the part of um, uh, actually a couple of papers that we're working on at the moment uh, where we looked at all our data and, 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 and looked at exactly what does it say about this because if you if you if you look at the research that has been done on on these topics in the past, there, um, in my view, would then tend to have fairly low sample sizes again, um, and it's it's hard to hard to build on that and to conclude from that. Um, so, um, and and with our current data from 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 Norwegian football with. This particular study so far we looked at uh, all those youth players between the age of 14 to 21. Again, this is the this is the whole population of elite players, like we would define them in in Norway. Um, 800 players. Um, we 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 find small differences between the better players in this group. Uh, versus the not so good players on football specific activity. Uh, there are differences, significant differences, but they're still fairly small, uh, which leads us to uh, to think that it's not just the quantity 
of uh, activity that's important to to become a good performer but it's equally much or even more the the quality of it how you how you approach learning and how much you get out of each session um, but then we also look at uh, other sports that they engaged in and um, um, to really address more that diversification view uh, and what we see is that um, first of all the other sports that these players engage in is is it's very little compared to what they do in football uh, I don't remember the exact percentage now but let's say it's it's less than 10% of their total activity so this so they do 90% football and they do 10% of other sports although this this varies of course but it's it's not much more than that um, and again there's absolutely no difference uh, and even less difference here in terms of so the better players do they do more other sports than than not and what we're thinking about building on this is that um, it could be that a uh, that a sport like football um, that uh, requires fairly sophisticated skills in very dynamic and complex team competitive environments that uh, you really need a lot of exposure to these different types of situations from a from a very very early age uh, to to really become a, a a really good player as an adult now the only thing that we open up for or that this data seemed to open up for in terms of um, um, uh, in favor of the diversification view, uh, which obviously also is big, is that uh, the, the motivational component here might play a role um, and the injury prevention, the burnout prevention component may also play, play a role. And that's harder to, to analyze with what we have uh, so far, but that's basically where we are. Now, what we haven't gotten started on just yet or at least not as much uh, that I can say say anything about it uh, to your listeners now is what the professional players have been doing so we have 600 professional players also in this sample uh, who have talked about and told us everything that they know about these issues and and how they were practicing and what types of activities and what types of sports they were engaged in and this is something that you'd have to come back in five or six months and I'll, I'll give you those answers all right um there's been quite a bit of criticism about the ten thousand hour rule or at mm. least some critics are saying that it has some merit but you don't want advising not to go too far with it mm. i've seen some examples of people applying it very literally i think one thing i remember what reading about was a guy who decided to start playing golf every day for mm. until he until he played at least ten thousand hours because he wanted to become a professional golfer mm. um to what extent does the ten thousand hour rule have merit and um, what are the problems associated with taking it too far, at least taking it too, uh, taking it too literally? Mm. Yeah. Um, I think that, uh, uh, I mean, the, the, the basic premise 
from Ericsson is that that everyone can become an expert at anything, but it does require 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. Um, and then, of course, what everyone takes from that is 10,000 hours of practice, but they forget the deliberate part of the practice. And that, I think, is the critical point here that, uh, like he also said, that, that not all training is effective. Uh, a, a training has to be in a certain way. It has to be deliberate. It has to have all the factors associated with focused practice, mindful practice, reflective practice. Um, so, so the so the full theory of deliberate practice is really more about uh, uh, the exploration that expert athletes have done, the constant trying out things, trying to figure out things, being focused about this, and being really truly present in their own development process, having that you know the the always reflectively exploring and trying to figure out. Now that's uh, an effective hour and that's the type of hour that really should be going into the 10,000 10, hour rule um, and this is this is really what we see in our research too um, for example we see that um, when we compare our, our data on uh, on our Norwegian players and these players in terms of quality are, are far inferior to uh, to their equivalents in, in certain other countries. And we've compared our data to, 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 to similar studies using exactly the same methods in countries like Brazil, Portugal, Netherlands, England, uh, countries with typically better football players and most likely with, with, with these particular populations they measured have also been better. We find that the Norwegian players actually have uh, have uh, collected more hours of training at the same age than the players in, say, Brazil or in England. And our only conclusion from that is that our players don't practice well enough. Our players may have more hours in total, but we don't think that the player that that those hours are deliberate enough. So to me, the whole response to this criticism is, yeah, of course, it's on target if you look at 10,000 hours as just counting hours, but you need to look at what each individual hour consists of. Is that the, is that the most relevant finding to, to perhaps the broader public? Because I know that people look at um, look for parallels between elite performance in sport and elite performance in other areas of life. Um, I know as someone who has been in the academic world at some elite institutions that there are definitely parallels between elite researchers and elite athletes. Mm. Is there, at least that, that seemed to be my impression as far as the importance of specific practice from an early age of the importance of consistent practice, um, special specialization versus diversification. Um, have you observed the same thing? Do those, do those factors hold in other areas of life? Um, I think so. Uh, like uh, like what I've observed, how I've I mean the what uh, what the research tells us, but also my own 
experiences. Uh, I, I do spend also time speaking to other populations, meeting with, with people of other professions and other areas, whether it's business or arts or, you know, policemen and firemen. And, um, uh, and it's, uh, it's fascinating, I think, how, how so many of these uh, general factors are, are universal. So, I mean, you have to, uh, we talk now about Ericsson, just the, the exact activity that goes into getting better. And then there's the big motivational component going into that, uh, enjoying the activity that you're a part of, but still really intensely seeking to get better and being and getting success at what you're a part of, then engaging in that practice process. Uh, the necessary number of hours, but then the whole self-regulation, constant exploration, your ability and willingness to pursue challenge and really not be afraid of going into challenging situations because you know that you're going to get better there, even though it's going to cost you a little bit more effort and you're going to have to endure a little bit more pain. Um, then it's the uh, dealing with everything that comes along your path that's kind of trying to to, to push you away uh, or to push you off off your track, um, coping with pressure, coping with the, the most important situations, the most important moments, coping with failure is huge. Um, uh, on your path, whether you try to become the world's best uh, business lawyer or, or football player, you're going to have to deal with those days where things did not work where you failed uh, at something important, where you had a big loss. Uh, uh, yet so many people fall off when, they, when, when those periods of uh, adversity or those, those failure moments become, become strong. Um, and then, of course, also, which we see, uh, I think a, a lot of young football players today in, in Europe, for sure, fall off is, is that they can't cope with success. Because as a as a young seventeen eighteen year old with um, with uh, who suddenly get a big gets a big name and you know you're you they write uh, newspaper articles about you and you you get a contract and you actually get a, a really good uh, paycheck uh, coming in every every month that's hard to deal with for a young eighteen year old and 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 some of these players. They get complacent because of that. They stop the hard work. They stop the focus and, and, and all the things. So, so it's, to me, it's, it's looking at all of these things together, uh, which is where, our, uh, where I actually spend most of my time now is to, is to look at all these factors together. Um, uh, we, try to, uh, we try to measure that as well, um, see if we can get data on that. Uh, we, we develop various models that try to try to address this um, uh, and and we work with teams and really uh, do practical experiments with with teams both in Norway and, and other places to see if we can affect these these variables and then we learn from those those encounters and and uh, and hopefully we'll we'll know just much more about exactly how this works uh, in, in, a, in the near future. Great. We're almost at the end of our time together. So where can people learn more about your work in the Norwegian Center of Football Excellence? Um, uh, well, they they can definitely uh, 
uh, send me or send us a request if they want more specific information. Um, they can uh, they can find I think my my contact info on my website uh, or just go online and they'll they'll find the various sites where, where I'm on. Um, uh, we do publish papers now and then. Uh, there should be uh, we just had another one coming out now last month. Um, so, so we regularly get papers out there. Uh, we do have a website. Um, we um, we are uh, uh, active at conferences. Um, so I will for sure present at the next uh, 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 science and the world conference of, of science and soccer in in the U.S. this uh, this coming June, I believe it is. So yeah, just just get in touch. Great. That's going to do it for our time here. My guest for this episode of the Soccer Metrics podcast has been Dr. Gayer Jordet. Gayer, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Howard. It was a pleasure. This is Howard Hamilton of Soccer Metrics Research. Thanks for listening to the Soccer Metrics podcast. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Soccer Metrics podcast. The Soccer Metrics Podcast is available for free from iTunes, so you can listen to it again and again. To find the notes for this edition and learn more about our research, services, and other resources, visit the site at SoccerMetrics.net. You can also find us on Twitter, at SoccerMetrics. So until next time, this has been another edition of the Soccer Metrics Podcast.